Hi, everybody, and welcome to Talking Digital Industries, a podcast for technologies and trends that drive industrial enterprises. I'm your host, Chris Brow. Now, today's topic is about something that really affects us all, food and drinks. And during the last lockdown, or maybe during the first lockdown, you could also say, when many people suddenly started hoarding food and products and we saw that supermarket shelves weren't always you know, full of the things we're used to, we realized what a central role the food industry plays in our lives. But you know, like it says, even in normal times, it's an industry where customer preferences and trends have a massive and rapid impact. So what does this mean for manufacturers? How can they always keep their finger on the public pulse and adapt supply to demand in the shortest possible time? We all want our foods on our plates, right? So what technologies are needed and how do we as consumers benefit from them? Very interesting topic, and I look forward to speaking with some experts in the field. We have Kai Schneidavind, who is responsible for the food and beverage industry at Siemens. Kai, give us a quick hello. How are you doing? Hey, how are you? Very, very good. Nice to have you on the show. Also joining us are Siemens experts for digital enterprise technologies that help companies naturally also in the food and beverage industry become more flexible and faster, Alistair Orchard and Magnus Edholm. Gentlemen, how are you guys doing? We're good. Splendid. Yeah, super. All right. Sounds good. Now, let's talk a bit about the current situation. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're all on the same boat here. Visiting restaurants have been basically impossible in the past couple of months. So maybe you can tell me what food, what drink do you miss the most? Um, any alternatives you discovered? You could start, whoever wants to start. Does any of you have something to drink and eat with them right now while we're at this podcast? Well, I can go first, Chris. Um, first of all, I just had a coffee and I'm drinking sparkling water. Mm -hmm. That's what I do. I mean, uh, but to go back to your question, what I've been missing, uh, I think it's more the social bit. I mean, I would totally love to go to a bar, restaurant, cafe and sit down and see people, people watching. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, what I miss the most. I don't miss the food, miss out on the food part, because I think it's been plenty there. Uh, but to kind of swing it around, what has become a challenge is that um, every day around 11.30, 12-ish, my kids come, ask me, Dad, what are we going to have for lunch? And tell you one thing, Chris, that has turned out to be a hassle. I mean, the imagination that I have when it comes to cooking, well, it has actually found its boundaries. Um, so we've, we've kind of started out by ordering a vegetarian uh, food delivery. So you get kind of a package home a few times per week and you cook after that. That's been actually good. Actually good. Okay. And that's helped me out. Thank you for that. Magnus, how about you, Kai? Well, you know, I get my energy from having a beer spontaneously with colleagues or just uh, hop on some uh, some idea on a good restaurant to meet and so on. And I swap that to virtual meetings. And sure, it's not 100% the same, but we kind of have some fun. And I do see that uh, there's energy coming out of that and uh, really looking forward to times that will be changing. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, uh, we always have to eat and drink. Right. Virtual meetings and virtual eatings. Ha ha. How about you, Alistair? Well, yeah, I'm not enjoying the lockdown. You see, my job was just basically flying around the world and eating and drinking with people. I had basically the best job in the world. And that's yeah, you did. I did. Yeah, it's more or less <laughs> stopped. So uh, Zoom dinners are not not much fun. Like um, like Magnus, though, I, I do enjoy cooking, so I can more or less replicate the dishes. So that's not a problem. But um 
convenience is. So one of the things that comes to mind is my kids, they used to really like going to the bakery every morning on the way to school, grabbing mm -hmm. um, focaccia. You know what focaccia is? Italian. Yeah, yeah. Bread, basically, right? Yeah. And, um, well, they don't go to school anymore. The bakery's all shut down because they were out of yeast. So that put a uh, pay to that. I, I have no problem cooking focaccia. I just don't want to wake up at four in the morning and, and prepare it. So really, it's the convenience that I miss. And I definitely remember the yeast shortage you just mentioned. Um, I think everybody witnessed that in the supermarkets a few months ago. Not only yeast, there were many products. What is the explanation of that shortage from a manufacturer's point of view? Did the problem lie in the production or in the supply chain or, or, or? I would say the three major factors. I mean, first of all, the basic ingredients from plants, they are coming on a certain uh, schedule. And they're not stored really for, for kind of a panic behavior of, in the supermarkets of what we were seeing, where all of a sudden people run and, and catch what they can. Second, there is the logistics and cross-border supply chains, very important. And we've seen that as a weak point uh, as border closures during covid had some challenges uh, for these flows. And sure, on the third part, that in several areas of the food production, a lot of people are still need to be present in the manufacturing places. And there were a lot of challenges to keep up that production. So we do see also now uh, during and after the first lockdown, a huge potential for automation and digitalization requests that would help in the future. Yeah, maybe I'll give a slightly different perspective because I think every country is different. The dynamics in every country with respect to the pandemic or epidemic were different, but the culture is as well. So, for example, I live in Italy, uh, uh, hence the focaccia. Mm -hmm. I think people do tend to eat more local produce. Uh, they tend to cook from scratch, certainly more than in maybe in the UK and in the US, I'm guessing also uh, compared to to Germany. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really see such a huge impact. The one thing that we did stop doing was exporting pasta and pesto. So that's probably why you guys couldn't find it on the supermarket. <laughs> that was missing on our ah. side. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's that aha moment. You know, now, now I finally understand what was behind the yeast, the toilet paper and the pasta and pesto shortage. Mm -hmm. uh, but the food and beverage industry deals a lot with these sudden changes anyway, right? Not just when faced with unforeseen events like a pandemic. I have the feeling that I see new products, new varieties, or at least new packaging on the shelves basically every month, be it processed food, snacks, beverages. What would you say are the top five drivers or trends right now? Where is it going to? Well, I'll go again. I'll tell you what's not on the list anymore. So over the last few years, uh, um, it re cost really has has appeared to be the almost the sole driver mm -hmm. for consumer behavior. We've seen prices come down and down, and I think when chicken breast costs fifty cents uh, a pop, then something's really going wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm the first person to criticize the young, <laughs> but um, but actually, here, I think millennials, post millennial consumers, they're kind of getting it right now. So they're slightly over-obsessed with um, their diets, you know, gluten-free, vegetarian, and all that kind of stuff. Right. But actually, when it comes to a focus on animal welfare, food safety, sustainability, shorter supply chains, uh, I think they're all great. And they're really influencing the, the industry. Okay. Now, uh, speaking of all these trends you just mentioned, can, can you imagine, I know people who follow all these trends at once. Magnus, I don't reckon you follow any food trends. I mean, we've met a few times at exhibitions. 
kind of feeling you basically ate anything, right? Or <laughs> is it maybe time for a confession here? Uh, Father Chris, uh, I'd be glad confessing. <laughs> Seriously, the, the trends, what we've done and um, some of our friends also is that we totally reduce the amount of meat that we eat mm -hmm. during the weeks. We actually go more or less all in vegetarian. If that's a trend, I don't know. Uh, it is actually really, really good. I, I'm... Um, when you start cooking vegetarian food, uh, you realize that uh, vegetable, if you do it right and give it time, mm -hmm. it can be uh, simply amazing. And uh, I mean, I have people in my family who are saying that, well, if you only eat vegetables, you won't get full. Mm -hmm. You always crave something more. It's not true. It's not true. No, it's not. Uh, it is definitely true. And what I think also on a, on a serious note, um, if we look at on the planet we live, mm -hmm. The resources we have are limited. There's no doubt about that. So I think if we all can take those, do those small changes, I mean, it makes us also feel better and um, right, and also saves the planet, I guess. So, and, and I kind of like it. I totally like the vegetarian approach, definitely. But what does this constant change of trends and customer demands mean for, for production? What technologies and skills are needed to master all these challenges at once? Um. Well, in a word, I'd say in a word, flexibility. And mm -hmm. again, that's that's something of a change. So um, if you'd have asked us um, a year ago, five years ago, then our answer probably would have been uh, um, more focused on efficiency and speed. So that's where the, most of the attention has been over the last few years. And I think it's in many ways painted companies into a bit of a corner um, where mm. Where, where their factories, actually the whole value chains were set up just to do one thing very, very efficiently. Whereas the trend now quite obviously is towards manufacturing food that can be produced locally with local ingredients, mm -hmm. smaller, highly automated, more micro facilities. And in those factories, it's becoming possible to reconfigure production flows on the fly to grab recipes that are coming down from headquarters uh, without reconfiguring and re-engineering everything. That's really where all of our attention is at the moment. We're, I would say that we're at the forefront of all of that research. Okay. It's very exciting. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with Alistair. Uh, and uh, the, the requirements or challenges that Alistair mentioned are definitely true. And there's obviously a lot more to it. And uh, what we are doing and driving the technology and thinking in this area is obviously, uh, you've seen this a few times, Chris, we're merging the, the virtual with the physical world, mm -hmm. uh, creating what we call digital twins and being able to test and design and validate and simulate everything in order to actually be able to react quickly on the trends or the, the market requirements. Uh, and uh, the digital twin as such, as a, the concept, is um, easily explained. It's a digital representation of something that exists in the physical world, more or less. So this digital copy actually reacts in the same way as a machine would do in real. Mm -hmm. And that gives us the benefit of, I wouldn't go as far as, say, looking into the future, but, uh, well, probably. It's like a crystal ball that you can see, if we do this, how will the machine react? If we do that, will what will happen with my facility? Uh, and that's something we drive. And it's also something that Kai and I have been working quite a lot with uh, over this last week, actually. We've uh, hung out together in um, a scene, a studio, and talking food and beverage. Mm -hmm. But essentially, it comes down to be able to build this digital twin, merging the virtual with the physical world, and of course, also taking in the, the cutting-edge technologies such as artificial intelligence. Because I'll tell you one thing, if there's something we have a lot of, it's data. And we now we need to analyze that data and use that to make 
decisions and confidence in order to build the best product for the market. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's always fascinating when I hear you guys talk about all these different technologies that play a role in food and beverage. I mean, all I want is a beer and some fries at the end of the day, right? <laughs> but nevertheless, Kai, uh, I know you're in touch with many customers in the industry. Maybe you can describe some specific use cases here. Like what's a typical challenge and how could it be solved using the technologies described by Alistair and Magnus? Yeah, we heard that. And, and uh, you see the requirements that uh, for F&B manufacturers are driven by us, the consumers. As you said, you just want to eat and drink, right? Mm -hmm. And as we see how we are now ordering food or getting food and the agility that we have in changing our mind and maybe picking up on trends, that is easily said in an app to order. And we do that on Amazon or others anytime. Mm -hmm. But uh, nevertheless, that hits all of a sudden the manufacturing. So before we were building to stock and then from stock to the, uh, to the retailer, and then it was always there. So that has changed. The agility is changing all these, um, mm -hmm. all these silos that, that need to be broken. Now agile work streams going on also in the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. The R&D people that are having an idea or the request from the consumer, they are then have to bring it into production in a faster way. This is where what Magnus said, they simulate more. They can use the digital twin to come and uh, to play and really see what would happen if we put this recipe down and do we have the means to do so? And we can simulate, we can make decisions together on a virtual model and say, yes, we're ready to do so. And we can still maintain our cost position in food manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And that is still a point where the consumer would like to have this product, but it has to be available. It has to be in the shelf. Otherwise, they buy something different, right? We want to go out of the supermarket and have some food on the table, right? Uh, not an idea or a picture. This is now where the industry is really rethinking the existing production concepts. And as mentioned by Alistair, there is the change from the mass production to that flexible production. And it mm. really acquires modular approaches in the automation as well as in the digitalization. So we get the idea down to have plug and uh, play or <laughs> plug and pray modules, as Magnus usually <laughs> describes it last week when we were in the studio. Yeah, because it is really on an automated way and in, in the existing landscape, not so easy to make dramatic changes and plug and play and not stopping uh, the line. Mm -hmm. So no downtime, which would at the end not only delay the production and lead uh, to higher cost, it would really be a problem. So in, in a dairy industry, if you stop for two hours, then you have the trucks that are delivering the milk. Mm -hmm. They will be stopping the outside infrastructure and police would be, would be controlling the traffic. So that is where it's really 24-7, 365 a year, cows are delivering milk right. and the production has to work. And this is what is also expected then from the industry to take care of that. Now, it kind of sounds like you were describing this from a producer's and manufacturer's perspective, but did things change for the machine builders as well? Sure. 
Exactly what I said from the plug and play, you have to have something new to plug in very fast. Right. And for the machine builders also now uh, that they have to deliver faster and getting to a shorter time to market with their machines. So mm -hmm. also that involves the digital twin of the machine to be able to provide a machine faster and adapt to the consumer or the customer demand in this case. And then the machine has to be plugged in and it has to play. It has to work. So it has to be virtually commissioned with a hardened software programming. So in order to really deliver, to plug it in and don't have the time where you can have a couple of batches and run it and test it and then you deliver to market. All this time can be changed that when it comes from a virtual world in the physical world, then we have to work. and. Really, a problem in the physical world is 10 times more costly than in the mm -hmm. virtual world. So that mm -hmm. is also driving the cost position and how to and why to invest in the virtual uh, world and in the digital twins makes it feasible. Alistair, in preparing our podcast today, I found an article called Trusted Traceability, Blockchain in a Potato Chip. <laughs> and it says, yeah. It, once again, you know, all you want is food, food uh, on your table or in your chips bag, your potato chips. But next time, you know, does this mean when I go for my delicious bag of chips, uh, blockchain technology might be in there as well? Maybe you can give us an insight. Actually, this is one of my pet projects. Uh, Kai's sponsoring it. Thanks, Kai. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he believes in this. Um, I do. This is yeah, he, uh, with good reason. So um, this is actually all about creating transparency for consumers, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a manufacturer, or you're a brand owner. It's actually really easy to claim a bag of chips is low sodium or gluten free or organic or local or sustainable. You know, meaning maybe it's been produced with a low CO two footprint. So you can make all of these claims, but the question is, do data savvy consumers actually believe you. Right. And so proving it to them is uh, tricky, especially if, as for many food and beverage products, especially if they're processed foods, the supply chain is going to be a relatively global one. So maybe the potatoes come from Germany, maybe the salt comes from Western France, the oil is going to come from Italy and so on. So how on earth do we mm -hmm. try and prove some of these claims? Well, we combine a couple of technologies to do this. We use the Internet of Things to kind of shine a light on the dark corners of the supply chain. So on, on what happens in farmer's fields and what happens in the logistics chains, what happens in the production process and packaging and retail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we store what we call an immutable record. Um, that means it can't be changed. So this record of everything that happens to um, all those ingredients as they flow through the supply chain and become a bag of chips, we store it in a blockchain. And then we connect that uh, those records to a QR code on the bag of chips. So it's not inside the bag, it's on the outside. Right. And uh, as a consumer, you can then read that and validate those claims. So you can see exactly where the raw materials come from, exactly what happened to them, and you can validate whether or not this is really organic or whether it's really local. And wow, it is groovy. The, um, the transparency is also useful actually for all the stakeholders in the in the value chain. And they can collaborate autonomously and efficiently to do things like um, manage a recall. Mm -hmm. So in our uh, um, applications of this, we've proven out that something that takes literally weeks to achieve, sifting through paperwork on the, on the phone, trying to call people, 
we can achieve that just with a literally with a click and five or 10 seconds um, uh, interrogating the blockchain. So it's a highly efficient. That, that is amazing. And it, it doesn't really matter if I'm interested <laughs> in all that or not. The possibilities. No, I mean it. I mean, look, look, I mean, I mean this from a from a from okay. from an end consumer perspective. You know, you open your bag of chips and you're like, OK, all I want to do is eat the chips. But to know about the possibilities there are today, that's just impressive to know if I really wanted to know where this piece of potato started its journey, I could basically trace every single mile. Right. Yeah. But it. it um. So you joke, but um, it's not just a whim. These more modern consumers, they're insisting on this, right? So actually, more than 80% yeah. of consumers would switch brands if the product they buy is linked to data and if there's more transparency. So they'll pay more and they, uh, we, we say they're data loyal as opposed to being brand loyal. So it's actually a, a really important thing to bring to market, yeah. It's added value for them, um, exactly. which they're willing to pay more, more for in the end. It's great. But how do customers know exactly where to start in order to make their production faster and more flexible? I mean, this probably isn't easy to predict. Or is there some kind of one-size-fits-all solution I've never heard of? Well, uh, but what we've done now over the last couple of years, I would say, is develops a concept that we call the digital thread. So, Chris, if you are coming to a city for the first time uh, and uh, you're going to go from one point to the other, you take the subway, mm -hmm. probably. And this is kind of how you can see the digital thread. It describes the user journey. Uh, you may have a challenge, uh, let's say, flexibility in manufacturing. Mm -hmm. Then we can show this subway map. And it doesn't really matter where you get in on this uh, journey. And then you take it step by step. And you see, if I want to go from here and I want to go eastbound, then I need to meet my goals. Mm -hmm. Then you have the different stations. And that's how we can guide a company through those challenges. And I mean, it's also important to know that digitalization as such is a journey. Yes, I would say it's a journey, but it doesn't have a, a given end station. It's mm -hmm. uh, always ongoing, continuously optimizing everything you're doing to, to meet the challenges and demands that Kai and Alistair have spoken about. So this sounds like an overall approach encompassing all industries. Alistair, I mean, um, a map helps everyone, right? Especially if you don't know where your journey is supposed to end, um, you still need some guidelines. So can you give us a concrete example for the food and beverage industry, maybe? Sure. Maybe um, uh, let's look at new product introduction, which is uh, in a fast-moving consumer goods company. Mm -hmm. This is really critical, right? So um, using a combination of digital twin and digital thread, we can actually kind of derive the changes that need to be made to a product, let's say a formulation, mm -hmm. which is much harder than the changes that you need to apply to a package. That's more or less just graphical. But when we're talking about the product that's inside a package, it gets uh, trickier, right? So we can derive those changes just using feedback from consumers, either directly or through some kind of consumer sentiment analysis. And then we use something called generative design, which is an AI-powered algorithm mm -hmm to modify the formula according to what the consumer needs, which is already pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. But then rather than try to shoot that formula out to all the sites, all the production facilities, and let them work out how on earth to manufacture this thing, which typically leads to a whole bunch of, well, it's slow, it's inefficient, and the facilities have to make trial mm -hmm. runs, dump um, product uh, when it doesn't work. Um, what we can do is we can add all the processing information to create 
to that formula and we create something called a general recipe that's kind of compatible with all the manufacturing sites. And then we're using the digital twin in the virtual world to transform that recipe and validate it in the virtual world so that we can create uh, executable recipes that will work first time in every single site. And that's all done before the recipe ever gets down into manufacturing. Okay. Okay. And then these kind of resulting recipes, they're distributed automatically into the facilities all the way down to our industrial edge platform where they're executed. Okay. All automatically mm-hmm. um, without the need for any re-engineering. And this reduces the number of manual touches mm-hmm. required for new product introduction from literally two or 3,000 touches, which are typically required, just down to one click per stakeholder. So it's a huge change. Mm-hmm. Actually, what's really important is that this combination of speed, efficiency, and agility and so on it actually allows you to unlock whole new ways of doing business, new business models. That's the key. So does this concept you just described also work for the growing number of startups in the industry? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, actually, the analogy I like to use here is is likening the digitalization of industry to a kind of, to, to the shift from land-based to communication to cellular communications. So if you're, Mm -hmm. picture you're a huge country, okay, and you've got this massive infrastructure that you've built up over many, many years, you are going to have a massive increase in communication efficiency by switching to to cellular, right? The biggest countries are going to have the biggest gain. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But actually, the biggest Mm -hmm. winners are actually the emerging economies because they can just jump directly to 4G or 5G without having to first build up the landline digital or cellular technology for them allows them to get a massive high efficiency head start. Okay. And so coming back to kind of um, food and beverage, the big players, they've got the most to gain from digitalization in terms of productivity improvement. But actually the startups that adopt those technologies from the word go, they really can race away. They have these uh, instant benefits. Um, do you remember last year in Hanover, there was uh, TrackRap, the yeah, UK yeah, 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 startup, yeah, a very innovative company. And they were using digital twins, digital threads from day one to design, validate, build and commission their machines. And they didn't have to transition from old ways of working to new ways of working. And it really gave them a massive head start in the industry. So uh, talking about digital twins, digital threads, potato chips in a blockchain, I mean, the food and beverage industry sounds really amazing. So maybe you could tell me what's the coolest thing you're working on at the moment? And we got to make it a bit quicker just looking at the time here. Um, All right, I'll, I'll make it quick, but I'll go, I'll go first because yeah. I'm working on the coolest thing, no doubt. Okay. So, um, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> of course. All right. So I live in Italy. I live near this small fishing village and... Um, we're helping a company called Ocean Reef um, by applying all our simulation, robotics, IoT, even smart infrastructure, machine learning to grow food in undersea biospheres. We're actually growing food under the water. So it's awesome because it uses no land, wow, no pesticides, no fertilizer, and um, it doesn't even use any water. It actually generates from the seawater all the water that it needs in order to to irrigate the plants. The most amazing thing, though, is that the food that's grown under the water, because of the pressure difference, is actually 30% higher in nutrient density than food grown on the land. So we see this as, I mean, it's very early days, but we see it's really promising. All right, Alistair, set the bar high. (laughs) 
follow that. Yeah. Who else wants to go? <laughs> oh, wow. Something from Magnus with getting away from meat to uh, No, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I totally appreciate the possibilities we have to be able to choose whatever we'd like to eat to get it delivered at a certain point in time. I mean, that is obviously related to the supply chains and the people that are delivering all the stuff that we need when we want it. And I think that is amazing. I mean, it, it takes some mm -hmm. planning to do that. Obviously, I can't beat our um, digital evangelist Alistair with his uh, deep sea <laughs> garden. Uh, but I, I do a lot of cool things, but that's probably a place for another pods. <laughs> okay, Kai? Well, you see, the industry is moving in the right direction to, to produce food in an efficient way and sustainable way. I mean, we will see what comes out of that underwater growing, but I would say still for the masses and still we have the growing population, we have to make sure that we contribute to wasting less raw materials or polluting our planet. And there's one area in the plastic packaging, mm -hmm. but whatever we can do in order to increase the innovation and technologies that we can uh, reduce the impact, that it's dissolvable and that we're losing less. All these things are important for us as Siemens as well. This is a part of what we're looking for, for this kind of Starship Enterprise technology thing where <laughs> in the in the 70s and 80s, you were looking at people talking into their hand with a little device. And I mean, that was the 80s when we had it or the 90s, I would say. Right. And look at what we have now in our hands. And this is what we're looking for to be part of the ecosystem as Siemens as well. And speaking of Starship Enterprise, I mean, I think you're all um, the right age to talk about that series. Um, <laughs> you're talking about the replicator on the Starship Enterprise. Remember that thing that can basically instantly just give you what you wanted when it comes to food and drink. If we think about this and you look at the future, uh, Magnus, maybe you again. Yeah. What do you hope for? Go in that direction or should we slow down a bit? I'm definitely more the slow down person, the slow food and so on and so forth. I like that part that you can cook together and then you eat together. But um, to enjoy a thoroughly cooked meal with an Italian touch and flavor and you enjoy it with a... Uh, a bottle of Barolo or water, for that mm -hmm. matter, mm -hmm. and that, that's great. Mm -hmm. And then you round it off with a a cup of coffee, espresso, which should be black as the night, hot as hell, pure as an angel, and sweet as love. Because coffee Ooh. is not something you drink to fight thirst. How about that? You can quote me on that afterwards. Fine. That's like that's like a mic drop right there. No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what I think is important, we want to know what we put in our systems. Seriously, I think that's important for all of us, well-being. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of comes back to what we said also in the beginning. Good food need to be made available for all of us. Bang. I, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> First time I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised as well, Alistair. I thought you were going to hit one out of the ballpark again here. I guess it took you, Chris. <laughs> you took it serious with a timestamp here. <laughs> well, let me tell you, this has been an exciting talk. I got to tell you, really interesting. And I think we could keep on going for hours. But Magnus, that was a great ending sentence. Black as the night, yeah. uh, hot as hot. hell, mm -hmm. pure, pure as an angel, and sweet, sweet as, as love. love. Yeah. All right. <laughs> with this, I would like to leave our listeners' ears today because, once again, I can't think of a better ending sentence. Gentlemen, Alistair, Magnus, Kai, it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it also. Super. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Thank you very much.
All right. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more, just get in touch with Kai, Magnus or Alistair via the usual social media channels or visit www.siemens.com slash food minus beverage to get more information on the digital enterprise. So stay tuned for our next episode. This is Talking Digital Industries. I'm Chris Brow. Join us again soon and stay safe, everybody. Goodbye. <music>